That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Broadcasting from the west coast of the Golden State, the nation's most straightforward recovery talk show, That Sober Guy podcast, helping to keep your brain sharp and your blood clean. And now, Shane Raymer. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That Sober Guy podcast. I have a great guest for you today. Dr. Ira Chasnoff is joining the show. Uh, Dr. Chasnoff is an award-winning author, researcher, lecturer. He's also president of NTI Upstream and a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Now, he's one of the nation's leading researchers in the field of child development and the effects of maternal alcohol and drug use on the newborn infant and child. His research projects include a study of long-term cognitive, behavioral, and educational developmental effects of prenatal exposure to alcohol, cocaine, and other drugs, strategies for screening pregnant women for substance use, the effects on birth outcome of prenatal treatment and counseling for pregnant drug abusers, the effectiveness of both outpatient and residential treatment programs for pregnant drug abusers, and innovative treatment approaches for children affected by prenatal exposure to alcohol or illicit drugs. That's Dr. Chasnoff led the development and operation of a laboratory preschool classroom to develop specific interventions for children prenatally exposed to alcohol and other drugs and developed a model Head Start Family Service Center for children and their families at risk from drugs and the drug-seeking environment. Dr. Chasnoff has written many books, including The Mystery of Risk, Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. He's also a film producer in the documentary of Moment to Moment, Teens Growing Up with FASDs, which is something that we're going to discuss in the podcast. So we're going to get to his interview in just a few moments. First, a word from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well as to family members who were caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's sobernation.com. Check it out. I'd also like to say, make sure to check out SoberPodcasts.com, part of the Sober Nation podcasting network. There you can find the Share Podcast, Recovery Elevator Podcast, WWA Wrestling with Addiction, and yours truly, That Sober Guy Podcast. Check out our Sunday morning live online meetings. Go to ThatSoberGuy.com, click on the Live Meetings tab, and register for free. We get some great people in the room there. We talk about a number of different aspects in recovery, whether it's alcoholism, addiction, depression, whatever it is on your mind, it's really meant to be something to bridge that gap between the large, um, the large networks like AANA. It's definitely not meant as a replacement to those organizations, but what it is meant to do is to help bridge that gap for maybe people out there that struggle getting out in their community or have issues with going to some of the bigger platforms for any a number of reasons. You can log in for free to That Sober Guy meetings uh, and, and just sit back, kick back, listen, or you can partake in the meeting and ask a question, share your, your thoughts for the day, whatever you'd like. So once again, register there, thatsoberguy.com on the live meetings tab. That's Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific time. 
Also, go to the Facebook page, like our Facebook page. It's Facebook slash That Sober Guy. Also, you can find us on Twitter at 5 That Sober Guy as well. And last but not least, if you'd like to make a donation and help support the show, all funds donated go right back into the operation to help bring you the best recovery content. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ira Chasnoff. All right, folks, we have a great guest for you today, Dr. Ira Chasnoff. Dr. Chasnoff is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Chasnoff, thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. And uh, if, if you don't mind, why don't we just jump right in here? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Chasnoff, and what got you researching uh, fetal alcohol uh, syndrome? Well, I, I wish I could say it was all part of a big plan, but actually, uh, I in back in the 1970s, I was running a neurodevelopmental clinic for babies that were coming out of the uh, newborn intensive care unit. And it was while doing that that I found this group of babies that we didn't really understand. And as I investigated them further, it turned out they'd been born to mothers who had been using heroin during pregnancy. So uh, coming out of that, we, with, with that information, we opened one of the first drug treatment program for pregnant women in the country. Uh, and our focus at that time was on heroin, heroin and, and other opiates. Uh, but it soon became clear also that women that were using heroin uh, were also using alcohol. And over the years, uh, it's, it's, it's become evident that alcohol is the big player. Uh, and so have been doing specific uh, research in fetal alcohol uh, for about 20 years now. Uh, and uh, every day we're learning something new. So I noticed, I noticed in the movie that it was, it was very well done, which, which made it easy to understand for, for just the average viewer, right? So I think I kind of want to follow, I kind of like to follow that, um, you know, that program here. And, and maybe okay. we can start with the umbrella, basically, of, sure. um, you know, of FASDs. Um, can we start there and maybe you can break that down, some of the subcategories that are underneath that umbrella? Yeah, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, uh, or FASD, is a relatively new term, uh, and it was designed as an umbrella term to encompass all children uh, affected by prenatal exposure to alcohol. Uh, The difficulty is, though most people have heard of fetal alcohol syndrome, Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually fairly rare uh, for a child to be born with the full spectrum. Now, for a child to have fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, the child has to be small. Uh, so in general, we say the child is below the 10th percentile with, in height or weight, so his growth is impaired. Uh, the second area is uh, the facial features, and the children have a very specific uh, uh, structure to the face uh, but the best way to understand it is that the whole middle part of the face is flattened. Uh, and then the third area are the neurodevelopmental problems. And with fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, many of those children, uh, most of them, uh, have intellectual disabilities, what used to be called mental retardation, so an IQ below 70. Now, that's fetal alcohol syndrome, and it's fairly easily recognizable. But it became very clear 
early in the work in this field that uh, there are children whose mothers drink alcohol and the dosage actually doesn't really determine uh, the severity of the features. Uh, but the, the children's mothers drank alcohol during pregnancy. The children can have normal growth, normal facial features, and a perfectly normal IQ, but they have significant learning and behavior problems. And so we began breaking these children out into different categories. So the umbrella of FASD includes fetal alcohol syndrome. It includes the children who are have the facial features and the learning problems, but uh, their growth is normal. So those children uh, are labeled partial FAS. And then the third group uh, is a group of children, and these are the children that are out in the schools that nobody is recognizing. These children have perfectly normal physical features. Uh, they're good-looking kids. They have normal facial features. They have normal growth. They have a normal IQ. Some of the kids I work with have an IQ as high as 125. But they have significant learning and behavior problems. And those children, the term uh, is now neurodevelopmental disorder with prenatal alcohol exposure. It's called NDPAE. Now, I know that's a mouthful and it gets very confusing <laughs> to the public, but what we're trying to do is to break this down and be very specific in our diagnoses. So I, I think a great example of that, doctor, is, is Kara from the Russo yeah. family. And, um, and, and, and just to, just to kind of set this up for the listeners right now in moment to moment, uh, Dr. Chasnoff's documentary, uh, he follows three families, um, and, and their, their children, um, which were all adopted if I'm not mistaken, right. They're all, all three families. The kids were adopted, uh, and they all, and they all three suffered from different, um, kind of the same, the same thing, the FASDs, but kind of different elements of it, different uh, categories of it. And Kara is is the example that kind of you had just given. She was really, really smart, very intelligent, um, a high IQ. Um, one of the things that I noticed that, that was very parallel with her was kind of this pyramid that you had set up in the documentary of the neurocognitive functioning, the cause and the consequence, uh, the self-regulation. Um, she has issues with, with just doing the, um, what is it, the regular adaptive, daily yeah. functioning. So maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. That was really interesting part of the, sure. part of the movie. Adaptive functioning is the ability to take what you know and apply it to daily tasks of living. Uh, and so it's the day-to-day -day life skills that everybody needs to survive. Uh, counting money, understanding money. Um, Kara, one of the examples, Kara talks about this. She looks right at the film. She's a beautiful young lady. She is. She has a very high IQ, uh, but she talks about the time. She's in her second year of college and uh, is doing fairly well with, with support, but she's doing fairly well. But she talks about the time her mother called her uh, after class and said, I have to pick you up to go to another appointment. What time do you want me to pick you up? And Kara said, I don't know because I'm, the clock on the wall is an analog clock. Uh, you know, she said, it's a clock with hands and I can't read the time. I have to hang up and look at my, my cell phone's digital clock and then I'll call you back. 
So here's a young lady uh, who is very bright, uh, who people would never guess until they've talked to her for a while that there's something not quite right. This very bright young lady can't tell time. And even when she does tell time, she it still doesn't have uh, meaning to her. And I'll just give you an example. When Gabe and his film crew were out um, uh, shooting the film, they were at uh, Kara's home and had been filming Kara and her mother. And then it was time for everybody to leave for school. So Gabe told them, he said, okay, I'll see you at two. And Kara looked at him very seriously and said, two in the morning or two in the afternoon. Hmm. Now, she wasn't joking. And that's just an example of taking information, you know, two o'clock and asking, well, are you coming back to my house at two in the morning? Uh, Which, of course, doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to do filming at two in the morning. Of course, it's two in the afternoon. Yeah. But Kara can't make that distinction. Wow. So where so in a in a case like Kara's, where does the genius part come in? Where I I noticed, you know, she's a great artist. Some of the artwork she was doing um, was was phenomenal. Where does that part of the brain, um, you know, kind of take over versus the part that has been damaged from from the alcohol? Well, see, it's all interconnected. And we have many of our children who have been affected by alcohol are very good artists. That's right brain. And so they can express themselves through art where they have so much trouble expressing themselves through uh, the written or spoken word. Uh, And uh, it's just, it all depends on the timing of the alcohol exposure, what parts of the brain are developing at any one point. And this gets to a very important fact. You know, I have a lot of obstetricians that tell pregnant women, okay, you're in your third trimester, the last part of pregnancy, you can start drinking now. A little bit of alcohol is not going to hurt. But alcohol actually affects the brain, the fetal brain, at every moment during gestation. And third trimester use, that is during the last three months of pregnancy, has a significant impact on uh, IQ of the child. And so there's no safe time to drink during pregnancy. Is, is it safe to say that in many of these cases, these kids are getting diagnosed with, with ADHD, for example, when, when in fact, um, you know, maybe the, the real diagnosis would be something like FASDs, but, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to backtrack how far back in, in the mother's pregnancy and if she really was drinking alcohol. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's a very good question. And in fact, we asked that question ourselves and did the research and published a research article just in uh, February of this year. And what we showed, we took a large sample of children in our own clinical program who we found had FASD and we reviewed, we got all their medical records and found that 85% of children with FASD had been diagnosed incorrectly. They had been diagnosed with something else. And the implication of that was a lot of them were on medication. Uh, Either they didn't need medication or they were on completely incorrect medications. But uh, the physician or whoever had worked them up had completely missed the diagnosis uh, within FASD. 
let's 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 kind of move on here and let's talk about Jerry Klein and let's talk about I think Jerry's case was was very interesting because um you know and and we'll get to this part of it after we talk a little bit about Jerry about the justice system and about the Phoenix case I thought that was really really interesting so yeah. in in Jerry's case um he had a lot of rage he had a lot of anger there was a lot of um I think it was called in in the documentary emotional dysregulation. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. Hey, you're pronouncing those words pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah, Jerry. First of all, Jerry uh, is a young man who was adopted right at birth. Uh, well, no, actually, I think <laughs> about eight months old or so when he was brought into the Klein's family. And he is an example of a child with full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome. And I first saw him in my clinic when he was probably only a couple of years old. And we've been following him ever since. Uh, He has a very low IQ. He has all the facial features. And he has the neurodevelopmental problems. And the area you're talking about now uh, it comes into the general category of self-regulation, the ability to regulate your behavior, to regulate your emotions. Now, that's all based in the middle portion of the brain. You use the, the part of your brain, it's called the limbic system. And the limbic system starts developing about 16 days, that's one six, 16 days after conception. So that's long before most women ever know they're pregnant. You know, you're only about two weeks pregnant. So alcohol exposure at that point affects the parts of the brain that give you the ability to regulate emotions. So what looks like anger for Jerry is not really anger. It's that, you know, to to take, uh, if you get into a situation, I'll take, you know, a typical person as an example. Uh, if something uh, doesn't go right, you have the cognitive ability, the ability of your brain to take that information and to manage it. So then you make a, a, a willful decision as to whether, uh, as to how you're going to respond to the situation. Got it. Got it. A child like Jerry doesn't have that ability, and so he will respond immediately with whatever emotion comes up first. There's no ability to regulate emotions. And uh, I often talk to parents when I'm talking to them, um, and I think this is in the film, uh, you know, imagine a pot of water sitting on the stove and you turn on the water. I'm sorry, you turn on the fire under the water and the water will begin to heat up. It'll begin to simmer. And if you leave the fire on, eventually the water will boil over. Well, a child with alcohol exposure is that same pot of water, except the fire's always on. Just imagine the child always at a simmer, and the least little thing that turns up the heat, the child immediately boils over. And so when we're working with parents, that's what we try to help them understand, is that their child is always at a simmer, and so they have to be very proactive and know what's going to set them off, though Many times, as Mr. and Mrs. Klein say, they have no idea what might set Jerry off. Got it, got it. And and yeah, it's that's very evident in, in the uh in the film. Um, you know, his he's very calm. Uh he smiles quite a few times in there, and at the same time you could see that, that if that switch 
I just call it a switch. I don't know if that's you know, mm-hmm. correct, but it, that's sure, what it sure. seems like to me. Um, if that switch gets gets flipped, then um, you really there's no telling, you know, kind of kind of what could happen. Now, how many of these kids, um, like like somebody like Jerry, um, are are in you know our juvenile system or are caught up in the justice well, system, you know, because and maybe they're not diagnosed with this. You know, I'm I'm sure that's a huge issue. Yeah, it is. And um, there is a a large study that showed that about 60% at 6-0, 60% of children with with FASD do end up uh, in the criminal justice system and are incarcerated. So part of our work is trying to help families avoid that. Got it, got it. And that's that's where um, this research and the film and, and I mean, that's, is that really what, what you're trying to do is obviously bring awareness to this because it's something, like I was saying in the beginning, it's something that I had never taken into consideration. I've always thought of, you know, my own alcoholism and um, you know, anyone else I know who's a, who's an addict or an alcoholic, I've always thought about it from an adult perspective and, and almost like a learned behavior. I became an alcoholic in my teens when I early started drinking. I've never, ever thought of it, um, you know, as having the, the repercussions from alcohol, from drugs, you know, the, uh, from, from the child's, from the unborn child's perspective. Yeah. I mean, so, well, so this is something that just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of awareness. And it's so great to see you and your son, who, who Gabe, who made the, um, you know, who made the movie as well. Um, bringing some light to this and trying to trying to get this out more into the public than it is. Well, it's I'm I'm in a very lucky position. I'm uh, officially I'm retired, but I call it preferment. <laughs> there you I go. <laughs> do what I prefer now, and and I've been doing. You know, this is my has been my career uh, is working with this issue, and now I'm at a point. I happen to have a son who's uh, a very talented filmmaker. He is, and can take. My goal is to take the science. And translate it into public awareness and legislative policy. I, I and, and speaking of that too, I, I thought it was interesting um, in the film that that uh, the judge that sentenced um, Jeffrey Landrigan is that how yes I say Jeffrey his Landrigan. Name? Yeah. Did you want to talk about that case a little bit? I thought that was really interesting, and you could see the passion in oh. uh, fr- from the judge, and I I could eat. I could immediately tell that she's been holding on to this for years. You know, this That's is right. something that has been keeping her up at night. She mentioned that a little bit too, but I mean, you, you can see through that and you can see that she wants to give back and to be able to, you know, help maybe someone else's case uh, in, in, in the name of Jeffrey Landrigan. Now, the first thing that came to mind for me when I heard this was the victim, the victims of, of this, of this guy who, who, who mm-hmm. committed these crimes and right. so I don't, I, you know, I, I was kind of torn between that at first, but then when I, when I really look at the point of the whole situation as a whole, may, maybe you can elaborate on, on that a little bit more. Sure. Sure. Well, let me explain the case a little bit. Sure. Jeffrey Landrigan uh, was in his early thirties and had been uh, uh, incarcerated in Oklahoma for two murders. And uh, I believe he had been, he was sentenced to life in prison. He escaped, ended up in Arizona, and murdered a third person. Uh, He was caught and sent to trial. 
And uh, through the trial, you know, the evidence was presented and he was sentenced to death. Uh, the appeals, of course, started going because all death penalty cases um, have the right to appeal. And when it went to the state level of the Supreme Court in Arizona, uh, the defense lawyer for the first time presented the fact that Jeffrey Landrigan had been diagnosed previously as having fetal alcohol syndrome. But his IQ is above 70, which is, you know, below 70, you can, you can argue in court, but above 70, that's the cutoff uh, for intellectual disability. So um, when the judge who sentenced him to death learned of this, she wrote a brief, I guess you call it, to the Arizona Board of Appeals that said, if I had known that this young man had been affected, had organic brain damage from prenatal alcohol exposure, I never would have sentenced him to death. His appeal went up along with the judge's statement all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, denied the appeal saying that, quote, it didn't matter. And Jeffrey was uh, executed in October of 2010. I had been called into the case toward the very end and so had very little I could do with it at that point. Yeah. Uh, but, so, but that's how I became aware of the case. Soon after that, there was another case uh, in Texas in which a young man with fetal alcohol syndrome was executed. Uh, when we were making the film, I thought this was a very important factor uh, that, that people needed to consider. Uh, and so we contacted the judge um, who had sentenced him to death, and she agreed. She flew out to Chicago. Really? And we did. Uh, yeah, and I was there for her interview when Gabe was doing the interview on uh -huh. camera. And it was amazing. You know, she, she comes across in the film. She's very put together. She's what you would imagine a judge would look like, yeah, you know, yeah. very straight and clear. And at the very end, you know, they kind of finished the uh, interview. It was all done. And we said, oh, wait, there's one more question. She said, okay. We said, what's it like to sentence someone to death? And that's when she just fell apart. And it was the most amazing. And that's where it really came across to me. And I think that's one of the really high points of the film when this judge says, uh, you know, that uh, Jeffrey Landrigan, she had said in the ruling that Jeffrey Landrigan had no benefit to society when she sentenced him to death. But now she's hoping that this film will help make, give some meaning to his life. Uh, it's an incredible yeah. moment. It is. Uh, it is, yeah, and you and you you can see that in her eyes, in her in her tone, the way she spoke it, on there, um, like like I said, the passion behind it, and I can't imagine, um, you know, having to having to be that in that judge's seat that does that on a regular basis, deals with those types of cases, because I'm sure there's some, you know, I'm sure you're torn between personal moral beliefs and the law, you know, and, yeah. and, and you could kind of see that that weighing back and forth uh, within her. It was very, very interesting. You know what? It was the first time I ever really appreciated the judicial side of, of yeah. the issue also. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was amazing. But now something good did come out of all this. 
the uh, Center for Children and the Law, which is uh, an office within the American Bar Association, picked up this issue. And in August, I believe it was 2014, passed a resolution that FASD should be considered a mitigating factor in uh, adjudication and sentencing, which means that the official, you know, policy of the American Bar Association is that judges and lawyers should consider FASD as a mitigating factor. Now, that was a huge step. And uh, since that time, uh, a group was called together and we wrote a white paper that will be distributed through the U.S. Attorney General's office that gives guidance to courts on how to consider FASD in the sentencing process. So something, you know, something positive did come out of this. So here, here's a question I have for you, and I, and I, I agree with you. I think that's a huge victory for um, for the judicial judicial system, and um, you know, the cases that are going to come up, um, you know, involving FASD. Um, the question that kind of that, that's popping into my head right now is how do you like how do you differentiate the the case of something you know something like um uh Jeffrey Landrigan for for example right and some someone who is has a a high you know price lawyer who comes in and just says my client is mentally ill or sick or, you know, do you know what I'm getting at here? Like, how, yeah. I mean, I, and I don't know that there's an answer to it, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just proposing the question because we hear about that so often these, these, um, you know, an individual just, um, uh, performs a, a heinous crime. Right. And then they, they come and they plead that they're insane or insanity or whatever. Where, where's the line drawn in between something like that? And then, um, and, and getting something like this, uh, taken into consideration in a, in a case. Well, it's uh, there is an answer to it, and that answer is called science. There is good scientific information mm-hmm. that can guide the courts and policymakers, no matter what arena of mental health you're talking about, whether it's addiction or uh, you know paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, and so th- that's what we have to resort to. We have to let the science guide us, but so often. Uh, as you're saying, a high price, price lawyer will manipulate and convince yes. a judge or a jury yes. uh, of something that's not founded in science. And, you know, we have a good example, uh, this whole case about the young, uh, the 16-year-old uh, who, you know, killed four people while driving uh, intoxicated oh, and yes. was yeah. let off with a diagnosis of affluenza. Yeah. which there is absolutely no science, no such thing in the world, but they got off with a high-priced lawyer uh, fooling a judge. Yeah. Uh, and it enrages people. And, uh, but we, you know, uh, so often public policy and the law get ahead of public health. And public health has to guide policy. Good science makes good policy. Uh, and when you try to develop policy without really knowing the true facts, that's when you get into trouble. That's that's a great point. And thank you for for kind of breaking that down. Um, it makes a lot of sense. I have one one more question for you. This actually comes from my wife, Jess, and uh, she wanted to know, 
can people that drink alcohol at a young age experience um, any similar um, any similar damages as that of a fetus? When tell your wife she needs to come to one of my lectures sometime, and I'll show <laughs> you. I'll show you a lot of our research is doing brain scans of infants who are exposed to alcohol, uh-huh. and I'll show you a brain scan of an infant whose mother drank alcohol during pregnancy, and the part of the brain called the corpus callosum shows thinning of the corpus callosum. And then I'll show you a brain scan of an adult with a history of chronic alcoholism who had not been exposed prenatally, but you see changes in the corpus callosum. The corpus, there's thinning of the corpus callosum. Wow. So some of the same changes you get in the fetal brain that's exposed to alcohol you can get those same changes in the adolescent or adult. So if there is an adolescent who is drinking heavily enough to get those kinds of brain changes, thinning of the corpus callosum, they may get into recovery, but that corpus callosum doesn't change back. And so you've got some permanent damage. And that's why in the world of addictions, we don't say, I'm, I'm recovered we say, I'm in recovery, because we know that the changes in the brain are there, and you have to be ever vigilant about those changes. Gosh, great, great point right there for, for everyone listening out there. Uh, I want you to take that to heart, because it's so true. We're, we're never cured, you know, as alcoholics, as addicts. We're, we're, we're in a constant state of recovery, and we have to be very mindful of that in order to move forward and progress, because those those things, although... You know, our past, the things we've done, the the drugs, the alcohol, all of that stuff can be, um, it can be kind of maintained. It's never going to fully go away, right? That's right. And that that's what just amazes me when I look at the way Alcoholics Anonymous is structured or any of the support groups are structured. Uh-huh. Those folks long ago, they didn't have PET scans and MRIs and CAT scans, but so much of what, so so many of the principles of the recovery support groups are grounded in good, what we now know is good science. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And that's, that's just remarkable to me. Dr. Chasnoff, uh, where, where can we find Moment to Moment and um, how can the listeners get in touch with you, reach out to you? Do you have any upcoming events? Uh, where can we find you at? Sure. I have lots of programs coming up all over the country. The best way to reach us to find, and besides the film, there are a lot of other um, resources. Uh, I have My most recent uh, book uh, is called The Mystery of Risk, and it looks at not only drug and alcohol exposure, but also how exposure to early trauma uh, can affect brain development across the lifespan and some of the therapeutic interventions. Uh, that book is The Mystery of Risk. And so if somebody who's really interested in this arena or is working with children affected, that's a, that's, that's a good resource. Uh, there's a lot of other materials. Any of this can be found on our website, ntiupstream.com. And uh, there's there's all sorts of resources, some free for downloading and others that can be purchased. Thank you, sir. I hope, uh, you know, if there's anything that, that I can do that this platform can do further, I'd love to have you on again in the future sometime. This was great. And I, 
I really just want to genuinely say thank you for for educating me, for educating the listeners of that sober guy podcast in uh, such an important topic that we really need to shed some some light on. So thank you, sir. Oh, you're very welcome. This has been another episode of That Sober Guy Podcast. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com. Contact Shane at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. And leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.